there, people. What is going on? Well, I can tell you not what's going on, but I can tell you what's going up. The temperatures, my friends, they are going up. Man, I was just on my app before I started this podcast, and it is showing that by Sunday, it will be 104 degrees here in the Duval. So nothing's going to say I am loyal and faithful to Jesus more than coming to church on Sunday on the lot where we're expecting triple digits. It's like the New Testament version of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Redemption Church is going to go into the fiery furnace for an hour to make a big deal about Jesus and say how he's awesome and sing to him and learn of him and then uh, lose like five pounds of body water in the process. But I was thinking, hey, today is episode 200 and what better way to ring in 200 than to break 100 in the community temperature wise. It's like Jesus and I were working it out. I'm like, dude, I'm going to do go to episode 200. We're leaving the 100s, so if you could kind of bring us into the 100s via the, uh, you know, like the the thermometer on the wall, so to speak, that would be great. And then from that, it kind of celebrates going from one to two. So all the way around, it's going to be crazy. Now, I didn't get Jesus to do that. Though that would be awesome if he would hear my prayer so much. He's like, yeah, I can turn up the temperature just to celebrate episode 200. Why not? That'd be rad. It's not how it works. But here's what we are doing today. Man, there were so many options I was thinking about. Uh, and I was tempted because uh, to celebrate the heat. I thought I'd turn up the heat a little bit and do a podcast on an article I was just reading this last week on women, evangelical women and sexuality and marriage and how evangelicals have had a tougher time with sex in marriage, particularly women, because of how we've sort of taught uh, to sex in marriage within a lot of our Christian materials and how maybe our purity culture failed true intimacy and sexual pleasure in marriage and how many Christian women struggle with enjoying sexual pleasure within marriage because there's these conflicting ideas as far as is this good or bad, right or wrong, is mom and dad thinking about what I'm doing and there's all this stuff and it was an interesting article and all this research that's getting peer-reviewed and then I realized I don't want to get in trouble. So I decided to kick that one down the road It actually might be one that I revisit with my wife at some point. I had her as a guest on before and maybe do it again uh, because it is interesting in the – three decades of doing counseling for marriages that Ellen and I have sat down to to deal with, one of the biggest topics is this topic and kind of um, issues of kind of, you know, just sexual – conflict or concern or absence in Christian marriages and particular to women, how there's a lot of conflicting emotions in there and how the purity culture did kind of contribute to some of those things. And so it creates these mixed signals. And so it's a really worthy topic to talk about. But I decided that, hey, if it's just a dude talking about it, I could really get in trouble. And I feel like my wife would have a lot more to add to that that would be positive anyway. So in the end, I'm like, I will not do that for episode 200 because we may not make it to episode 201. So we're not doing that. So instead, what I thought I would do is something that for anybody that's known me for any length of time or listened to any of the messages I've talked over any length of time, uh, you're going to know that this is something that I'm pretty transparent about. And I thought, well, how do I kind of pull this all together into this interesting package of stuff that I'm always thinking about in the back of my head and I have been for a very long time. And so the topic today is all about belief, disbelief, doubt, Calvinism and Arminianism and maybe some other isms in there as well. So it should be completely fascinating uh, or at least maybe to some people, kind of interesting, because I'm going to look at this from one part theology, I'm going to look at this from one part philosophy, I'm going to look at this from a little bit of the angle of neuroscience, and then I'm going to have my own personal testimony kind of intermixed into that. Uh, So you'll get to know me a little bit more as you also kind of uh, learn how I 
ponder and process bizarre things like doubt and belief, right? Uh, so it's going to be about all of that. Uh, we'll see how it turns out in the end. Maybe in the end I'll be like, and if you listened all the way to the end, I'm sorry, I wasted your time. Um, but I figured, hey, you know, a lot of us are going to be trying to find air-conditioned spaces anyway, so maybe you can listen to this or watch it while you're in your air-conditioned space because, again, it's going to be a scorcher, baby, which I'm trying to decide if I'm excited about that or dreading that. I know my lawn is dreading that. But there's something about like those hot, hot days where you're like, you don't get this often. And so you can either like shun it or sort of receive it as this really odd experience that you get to have in this micro window. And then you move on back to things as normal, though. By the end of it, all my lawn will be dead and I'll be sad. So. Anyway, you're not here to hear me ramble about temperatures and lawns. You are here so we can walk through belief, doubt, free will, Calvinism, Arminianism, and my own personal testimony through philosophy, theology, neuroscience, and the like. Okay, so here's what I've been thinking about on this one. And I've thought about this for a long time. And and this even then gets into where my own area of doubt lands, because I do struggle with doubt. And people know that I've always shared that. And and I'm always surprised by the, the believers that I meet that don't struggle with doubt, they are always the most interesting to me because I, I, I find more often than not people have their doubts um, than are just 100% certain. But there are those people in my life that are just certain about every part of what they believe. And I think that's pretty a cool thing. It's not my world necessarily in the world of many of us, but there's some of us that are like that and I think it's cool. So, um, but here's what I've been thinking about. Uh, and I'll start with theology because that's a good place to start. So in the model between Calvinism and Arminianism, for example, on the discussion of free will, it's that simple one that you have with your friends sitting around the campfire in the dorm room, whatever it is, where it's like, how much free will do we really have? And the the two different camps within Christianity known as Calvinism and Arminianism approach this free will question very differently. So the Calvinists, when it comes to the free will of choosing to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus, They would say you really don't have much free will there. In fact, if anything, it's God in his sovereign design compels you with an irresistible grace to believe in Jesus. And that belief that you execute is actually a gift given as well. So it's the grace of God that gives you not only the ability to believe, but it gives you the hunger to believe. And if he gives that to you, you will in fact follow through and believe because he's chosen you from the foundations of the world to do that. So that gets into predestination and a election and effectual calling, these words we use that describe all of that. But it's basically saying God chooses to save you. And if he chooses to save you, you will go through the steps to be saved, which one of those steps is belief. But even that is not your free will in play as much as his sovereign uh, kind of compelling of you to do that thing. The Arminian is a little different, not as radical as you would think, but a little different than in in the sense that a theologically minded Arminian would say, well, we agree that God has to open the heart. We agree that the Holy Spirit has to do a work in the person to move them to believe because apart from the Holy Spirit doing that work, nobody's going to be compelled to believe in any way. So they believe the Holy Spirit has to do that. The Calvinist believes it's selective. The Holy Spirit only does that in some people. The Arminian looks at like the Gospel of John, for example, like chapters 15 and 16, and they say, well, from that, the Holy Spirit, he does a work in everybody. Every single person the Holy Spirit works in and brings them to a space where they have the capacity 
to believe or disbelieve when they come in contact with the gospel. And maybe they'll disbelieve 10 times, but on the 11th time, they'll eventually believe. But that is on them, right? So the Spirit gives them the capacity to believe or disbelieve, but they must choose in and of themselves with their free will to take that step or not take that step. And so for those who then believe in Jesus, it's their free will choosing. And for those who reject, it's their free will rejecting. In both systems, what's interesting to me is I'm not sure, and this gets into now a little bit of my philosophy linked with neuroscience, um, I'm not quite sure we're putting belief and disbelief in the right category because I'm not certain or sold on the idea that belief or disbelief has much to do with the will at all. And I'm not sure a person who believes really freely believes and freely continues to believe. And I'm not sure a person who freely disbelieves really is free to believe or disbelieve either. I I think belief and disbelief operates at a slightly different level than the idea of our cognitive ability to make a decision on a subject, right? So let me put this in a different light. Um, I think there are things in life that I'm going to loosely use the term free will. And for those listening, I'm putting it in air quotes. Free will, which I'm not sold that any human being really has free will. Forget my theology. I have a bunch of other reasons. I don't believe we have a very vast range of free will. But but I'm going to use that as a casual term. We probably should use other terms than free will, but I'm going to use it because it's, it's common. So... Um, any given day, you're going to be faced with decisions that you have to make. And you're going to think you're exercising your freedom of will into decisions such as, do you drink coffee that morning or do you drink tea? Do you take this route to work or school or to a friend's house or do you take that route? And you have a conscious decision. You're going to have to make that option A or option B choice and execute it, right? In that sense, I would say, yeah, you have a type of freedom of will. You have the ability to make choices under select things. But belief and disbelief I think it's less in the realm of like this objective choice model and it's more like an emotion. So I think belief and disbelief, I would almost put more into the category of something not quite in your free will control, but slightly outside of that. So let me give a parallel to this. Um, If somebody does something against you and it makes you angry, and so you're instantly hot. It's just, it's visceral. It just bubbles up. It's not like you flip that switch on. Something just takes over, right? Because that's what anger is. Anger is not you going, oh, I see. They just did something to me. And now like your data from Star Trek, it makes sense to logically progress toward showing anger, Ugh, right? Like you don't do that. You just get angry. You, you don't have any kind of volition in that. It just happens. Now, for those who have anger management issues, then they have to learn coping tools to deal with their anger, but it's not like they can just turn anger on and off. So if your friend says, hey, don't get angry, just blow it off, don't worry about it, let's go. Could you just flip the switch and go, okay, I'll just turn off anger now. It's on, it's gone, now it's off. Okay, let's go do whatever. No, you have to let it subside. You don't have control over anger, you just have to let it run its course and eventually it evaporates. I suppose you could feed it more and you can be like, yeah, they're like this and like that. And then you just keep throwing logs on the fire and you can maybe stoke up that anger fire more, but you can't just shut it on or turn it on or turn it off because you don't have the freedom of will to do that. It is beyond the scope of that capacity. Same would be true on being afraid, right? If you have a fear of heights and somebody takes you on the edge of a cliff and they say, don't be afraid. Well, you can't just turn that off. So in the same way, I am increasingly convinced that belief and disbelief are less an act of our cognitive will 
and more it's something that we are a little bit of at the mercy of at an emotional type level. It's not quite an emotion, but at an emotional type level. And so here's the way I, I would maybe put this to the test. If you're listening or watching right now and you believe in God and you have a firm belief in God and you believe in free will, I want you to right now turn off your belief in God. I want you to completely turn it off. I want you to turn off so much that you sincerely can say, I no longer believe in God and I no longer believe in the Bible and I no longer believe in the cross and I no longer believe in, or maybe it's another religion and you're listening or watching and and you're a, a Muslim or you're a Buddhist. I want you to turn that off right now. I want you to now live in the shoes of an atheist for just the next couple of minutes as I continue to talk. Now, if you can do that, I believe you have the free will to believe and disbelieve. But if you can't turn off your belief unauthentically, honestly, intellectually, inhabit the space of an atheist, then here's the reality. Your belief is not an act of your free will. Your belief resides deeper in your psyche and it's beyond your capacity to control, right? So, because I I was just had this kind of epiphany about this, you you know, in, in recent years where I'm like, yeah, I like if you can't if you can't turn it off, then who's to say you could turn it on? See, I, I find so often I'll talk to people how they became believers and it's like, it just sort of made sense. Now, I think once you're in the space of believing, you can add logic to it and you can add argumentation to it and you can reinforce your belief just like you could reinforce the anger if you wanted to. But when you cross over into belief, so often it's not because you rationed it all out and reasoned it all through and everything else. No, it's just something in you that you're like, this just sort of makes sense. I don't know why it fully makes sense. I can see now the arguments for why it can make sense and then those sort of buttress it, like I said. But moving into belief isn't like you're like, I disbelieve, I disbelieve, I disbelieve. I'm going to now choose to work against my disbelief, turn on the switch of belief, and I'm in. I don't believe that's how it works for people. Here's what's equally true in my mind. For the disbelieving person, I don't think it's an act of their volition to be a disbelieving person. In other words, they're not like, I'm just having a white knuckle it. I'm so tempted to believe. I'm so tempted to believe. I'm so tempted to believe. I can, I'm going to fight and force myself into disbelief. No, I, I find that their disbelief is just natural to them. It just makes sense. If they wanted to believe, they couldn't just flip that switch. There's something in them that's just not there. Right. So you can give them all the evidence and all the facts and all the proof and all the hey, look at the, you know, whatever it is, you know, just you, you pick all the uh, the kind of the intellectual arguments or the apologetics involved in trying to move a person to belief from disbelief. But if there isn't just something kind of emotionally inside where the, f- the switch flips for reasons beyond their control, they're going to stay authentically in disbelief and they can't move to belief just as much as the person of belief can't authentically move to disbelief. So in that sense, maybe this favors kind of the Calvinistic model a little bit more. That's not so much my focus. I'm not trying to make an argument for Calvinism versus Arminianism, but I am trying to get to this idea that says belief and disbelief are just slightly outside of the reach of our free will control. I think they're just slightly out of reach. And so with that, we're talking in very black and white terms right now. The disbeliever authentically disbelieves. The believer authentically believes. But now there's people like me in the fuzzy middle. And I'm in the fuzzy middle because I think I oscillate in and out at different times in different ways between those belief and disbelief things. And it's not that I want to. 
It's not like where I have areas of, of doubt in my Christian faith at times that I'm like, man, I so desperately want to focus on doubting right now. That's not how that works. No, I'll be out on my tractor and I'll be cross-pollinating ideas in my head about, okay, so if God says this, but then God does that, and then he claims this, but then I see that, and how does that work? Boy, I'm not sure. How does that fit? Is that really true? Is that true of God's character? He says this, but he does that. And, and so my brain is rifling through the data and at moments I'll be like, no, I'm at peace with that. I believe. And other times I'm like, gosh, man, is this really true? Can I believe that? And that belief and doubt that I am wrestling through, again, it's not me saying I'm choosing the belief, now I'm choosing the doubt, now I'm choosing the belief, now I'm choosing the doubt. No, it's just that my brain can't rest. It's rifling around all this stuff. And then there's this weird little emotional needle or this weird little belief-disbelief needle, which feels more like an emotion at times to me, though being moved around by logical ideas, but still authentic nonetheless, to where I'm like, man, I'm really struggling with this notion of God right now. I don't want to struggle with that notion, but I'm just honestly struggling with that notion, right? Or, man, I'm at real peace with God right now. You know, I don't know if that makes sense because that's totally an act of faith. I don't know if it's going to turn out that way, but I'm just going to trust and be at peace with God right now. And so it's kind of like that. But but that whole episode, again, is this thing that's sort of beyond my control. And so from that, maybe a couple of things I've been kicking around. I think one is as I interact with um, people who either A, struggle with doubt or disbelief, I realize that while, again, there are factors that can feed things, at the deepest core, that that disbelief a person holds is not them trying to just be stubborn and hold disbelief. As much as, you know, a person that I've seen be a believer and then become a non-believer, I don't think they're trying to be stubborn and leave their belief. There was just something in them that suddenly one day or over the course of time, they're just like, I don't know, man, this doesn't make sense. I can't hold this anymore. And again, it was way more of like this intuitive emotion thing inside them moved. And then their brain said, okay, how can I reinforce this internal movement that's already occurred that they didn't choose to do the movement. It just kind of moved on them. And then they reinforce that movement, right? So if you've ever read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, uh, he kind of gets into that. The elephant moves. The rider doesn't have a lot of control over the elephant, except to the degree that it kind of reinforces wherever the elephant goes. If you've not read the book, that made no sense to you. I get it. Um, but I think it applies in this space, right? I think it applies to our beliefs and doubts. I think there's things that we can do to reinforce. That's true, but they still reside deep down, slightly beyond our free will. So I'm not really sold on the idea that anybody's belief or disbelief is rooted in a free will choice. I think it kind of chooses them more than they choose it. Um, and again, like I said, that maybe sounds a little bit more Calvinistic, but I think there's other things in there where I'm like, it's not quite, I'm not quite trying to reinforce the Calvinistic model because there's other elements in that where I'm just like, I'm not sure how that works. Um, but then as it comes down then to my personal testimony of how I oscillate at times, um, it's not that I want to again. I can't help that by way of the process, right? And so in this realm of transparency then, like some areas at times that I think about where I struggle, right? As Even as a pastor. So maybe I say that to say, hey, even pastors have their doubts. Um, I'll tell you where I don't have any doubts. Uh, I don't have any doubts that the message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is the only way to change the world. Here's what's strange about that, right? Like I'm really, really certain that those three chapters in Matthew uh, or that one chapter in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, that those patterns are the only way we will see change in the world. I also, I, I see more often than not that we as Christians are kind of resistant to that pattern. We don't, we don't 
So weirdly enough, we, we claim that it's the word of God and it's sacred and it's true, but I don't think we believe it enough to actually do it most of the time. Like we're more apt to, you know, get a lawyer than turn the other cheek. We're more apt to retaliate than go the extra mile. We're more apt to lash out at our enemies than to love them, do good to them, pray for them and bless them. Like, you know, we're more apt to be judgmental than to worry about the log in our own eye. Like I think we, we see all of that and it's all good, but I don't think we trust it so much that we'll do it at all costs. And therefore the world doesn't change. I'm convinced that the world doesn't change so often because we won't do those things. Only when we do those things, will the world change? So I have, zero doubt about that. Even though it is counterintuitive and backwards to the way the world works, I've never had doubt that the Sermon on the Mount is the way to change the world. So I don't have a doubt there. Where I sometimes struggle with doubts, though, is I struggle with the invisible God who loves everybody so much that he desperately wants to save them, but not so much so that he'll show up in everybody's living room at 5 p.m. at night to say, hey, just showing up again to let you know I'm here. I'm real. I love you. I love you so much. I sent my son. And not only that, I show up every day at five to let you know I love you so much. I want you to believe in me. See, the, the mechanism that God chooses to use is this real radical version of an idea of faith and belief where the being is invisible, he loves you so much that he won't talk to you audibly. He loves you so much he won't show up to you visibly. He loves you so much he won't fix every ailment, problem, or evil in the world, but he loves you still so much he sent his son, right? And so for me, sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm trying to understand this. Like if if God is a good dad, what does a good dad look like, you know? And so does a good dad look like a dad who doesn't call, doesn't write, doesn't show up. It's very one-sided. He watches you all the time, but you don't let him, you don't, he doesn't let you see him. Uh, he, he communicates in such cryptic ways that he's like, oh, here's a book I wrote a long time ago, like 2000 years ago, son, you can read it today and see what you think. And, and like all of that, and I go, man, that, that to me is sometimes really, really hard. This idea that this God is so desperate for lost people that he won't do anything that looks like objective proof. And so I'm like, well, if, if, if that's it, then are you, are you really there? Like, so weirdly enough, where my doubts come into play is I firmly believe the Sermon on the Mount will change the world and the message of Jesus, a message of Jesus is the only way we will fix things. And then weirdly, I'm sometimes not always certain that there's a being on the other side of all of this, uh, that is directed that message. Like, cause I'm like, wow. It just seems like you would show up a little bit more or you would do a few more things or you'd make it so obvious. And and again, if you want none to perish, but all to come to salvation, then why don't you have a better marketing strategy? I mean, the best marketing strategy God uses for people to get saved is the church, is Christianity. And clearly in our culture right now, we are striking out, man. We are we are far below 500, you know, on our our scale. And so it's like, really? A God that is desperate to save the world so much so that he sends a son to be a servant, to be a slave, to die on a cross, to take our sins. That same God then relies on very... Um, fearful, frail, inconsistent, hypocritical, self-righteous people to get his message across. It's like, if you really love lost people, maybe you would also like show up in their living rooms at five o'clock and you could kind of buttress the places that we fail, you know? And so these are the places my brain kind of goes sometimes where I'm like, okay, I'm trying to understand this, you know? Because again, if it's a being that is all loving and all powerful, then he has both the impetus and the the authority to intervene in such a way to accomplish his mission. If he doesn't want the world to perish, but to be saved, Jesus says that, 
Peter says that. Uh, the Old Testament writers had the sense of God redeeming the world. Like, if that's the case, then man, maybe grab it with both hands instead of this one invisible hand that we're all guessing at at times. And so that for me is this mental process that I go through sometimes. And so from that, I'm kind of like, do, do I believe or do I disbelieve? And I'm trying to understand if God is like this, but he doesn't do that. And if he doesn't do that, is he really there? Anything else? And all of that, you ready? I'm not trying to turn on that workshop in my head. I'm not. So another part of where I don't have free will is my questions, my pondering, my, again, cross-pollinating of information, trying to figure out how that verse fits with that verse, fits with this picture, fits with that idea of God and everything else. I would love to turn it off. If somebody says, just don't think about it. I wish I had free will to not think about it. I would love to do that. And best we can do is distract ourselves. But even then, it's just a trick, right? It's a placebo in essence, because it's going to just flood right back in anyway, right? So in all of that, then I go back to very few things in life. We really have free will in. We're sort of along for a ride. So our belief really isn't an act of will. Our disbelief isn't an act of will. Our sometimes oscillating between belief and disbelief isn't an act of will. Um, all of that is just kind of the current that we're going down. Now, maybe some of you are like, no, Matt, you're crazy. I have free will over all of those things. Can you please send me the formula? I would love to have the formula to know how to get some control over my lack of free will. Um, But I think most of you kind of get where I'm coming from, that that's not what we experience. We're along for a ride. Um, But like I said, we can feed things. And so maybe the way to then round this out is I go, yes, I am along for a ride where my brain thinks about things and references and cross-references things that I'm not asking to cross-reference. Um, I believe my belief is sincerely not my own. It's just inside me at a level I don't understand. When I have moments of disbelief, it's just sort of inside me at levels I don't understand. But in that, I can still choose, like with anger or fear, to feed it or fan it or not and to, to let that be the driver. And so maybe that's kind of the practical side of the everyday missionary for this one. Where what I seek to do is I go, okay, what what are the things that I have real conviction on? And it's that I believe the Sermon on the Mount is the only thing that will change the world. If I, Frankly, I honestly think that I, if I was a disbelieving person, if I did not believe in Christianity and I walked away today, I would still say the Sermon on the Mount is the only way we're going to change the world. Um, and so from that, I go, that I have certainty on. So I, 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 I plant both feet firmly in that. And maybe that's that part of the, the the will that I can exercise as I say, you know what, I can have a tenacity that I'm going to do this thing that I believe in, right? Even though sometimes I have other doubts, I believe this is true and I'm going to put my, my focus there and I'm going to believe that if this is true and I think this changes the world, then perhaps there really is an architect behind it that is watching and, and asking me to take this step of faith to do this hard thing and in the end, he will reward me for that. If I can bank on the things that I feel more certain of, I'm going to lean into that harder and I'm not going to try to lean into all the ways that I could doubt more. I'm not going to try to feed all of my doubts more. In fact, if anything, my brain is going to do plenty fine on its own. Again, cross-referencing things and figuring out, well, that Bible verse doesn't fit with that Bible verse. And so how does that kind of string together? And then you're trying to show how everything is a collective whole, but then at times you're like, I don't know how to make it work. And, And I'm like, I'm not going to try to focus on that any more than my brain just already naturally does it. I'm not going to give it a bunch of like, I'm not going to go grab like three Richard Dawkins books and an old Christopher Hitchens and the recent Sam Harris and be like, okay, now here's more logs to throw on the intellectual fire because um, that's not going to help, 
right? So instead of go, I'm going to focus on things that I can be behind. I'm going to focus on the things that can help reinforce belief. And from that, hopefully it just will continue to develop and grow again at the deepest core. I don't think I chose my belief. I don't think I continue to hold my belief. It's something deeper in me that kind of is going to go one way or the other, but I'm in that camp, right? But the other thing is I honestly go with the people in my life that are disbelieving that I can have a certain type of compassion toward them, realizing it's not like they're just trying to be resistant. They're not just trying to fight me on their lack of belief. They just authentically and honestly, they just, they're not there. They're not there right now. And this is where it does go back to the fact that what I have to really rely on is that only God can get them there. Only God can move that little needle in them in such a way that they go, huh, didn't see that coming. Hmm. I don't know why. Because here's the thing. In either system, belief or disbelief, there are some unanswered issues. In both systems, there's holes. In both systems, there are times that we turn a blind eye to what looks to be inconsistencies, whether in belief or disbelief. Uh, we go, yeah, I know it says that, but I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just going to take it in faith. Just as much as in the disbelief world, you go, yeah, I, I get there's all this order and balance and symmetry, but over enough opportunities and time, again, random can become kind of ordered, you know? And so they go, even though it's turning a blind eye, right? In both systems, we all acknowledge that we turn blind eyes because more deeply, there's something beyond our reach that causes us to lean this way or that way, Um And from that, because we're already kind of leaning there, we can, again, be a little bit more open-handed on our side of things because it's already, it has a deeper root in play. And so from that, I can be at peace with some of the holes and be cool with that, right? So on both sides, it's true. But with that, then I just look at my disbelieving friends and I think again, hey, until God does a thing in them, I, I can't force, push, cajole. They couldn't choose it if they wanted to. But you know what? It means I can wait on God. And in that, what I can do is not give them more fuel to point out how what I believe is silly, hypocritical, unkind, whatever else. In fact, if anything, I need to be extra compelling to really live out that stuff of the Sermon on the Mount, to really embody the things that Jesus said, because if that needle is to move in my disbelieving person or friend at all, um, it's got to, it's going to have to have something where it goes, and that's what I'm attracted to, that thing, that whatever that Christian thing is I'm attracted to. Because I do think that sometimes our Christianity is just throwing logs on the fire of the disbeliever because they see all the baggage, the ugly, the inconsistency, the bearing of scandals, the recklessness of patriarchy, you name it, we're guilty of a lot of things. And so from that, I need to do all that I can to create as few a burdens as possible for a disbelieving person So that when that elephant inside, when that little pressure meter inside flips, not because their free will did it, but because something just happened, um, they would see something on our side and be like, that's where I'm drifting to. I want to drift to that because that looks attractive. That looks like it makes sense. That seems to fit. That would be right. So what does this all mean in the end? Well, it means that all of us as everyday missionaries are human, right? And as everyday missionaries, we're trying to stitch together everything as best as we can. And in that, we can take no pride in our belief because, frankly, it was out of our reach. We can take no pride in maintaining our belief because even that, I think, is a bit not in our reach. We can do maintenance things, but we don't do controlling things. And then in that, we can't look at our disbelieving friends and think they're just a bunch of jerks that are stubborn and don't want to believe. No, they just can't believe. 
They just authentically, honestly can't believe because belief is that intangible thing. You can't dissect it. You don't fully understand it. You just kind of experience it. You live within it. And then from that, you kind of throw more logs into the fire of it. But, but again, it's so intangible. And maybe this just brings it back to why Jesus says, just scatter the seed everywhere. Right, scatter the message everywhere. You never know where it's going to land. You never know what what environment it's going to hit in the the life and interior of a person. But hey, it might hit them in such a way that suddenly they're surprised, dumbfounded, and shocked that whoa, this thing that I thought was dumb suddenly is making sense. Don't know why, right? And for those of us on the other side, hey, I believe, even though I think there's some stuff in here at times where I go, that's dumb. It doesn't make sense, but I still just believe because again, it's just something that is true to the person beyond their free will. Perhaps that's sovereignty. Perhaps that's uh, just the way the spirit works. I don't fully understand it. I don't try to pretend to understand it. So much of it is mystery. But I know for certain that we can stoke and fuel things. And I know for certain we can be more comfortable with the belief and disbelief that we struggle through, provided that we try to feed right things as much as possible. And I believe if we're open and honest like this, and I believe if we're investing in other people and understanding of their space and their disbelief, and we're just modeling something that is pure and honest and true and humble and gracious and Sermon on the Mount oriented, I think if we're doing that, then we will be incredibly effective everyday missionaries.